Okay. All right. Um, also, we're going to have a short testimony from Jonathan. Come on up here, buddy. Or I'll pray first. Father, just thank you, God. Lord, that you're so faithful. You stay by my side in all moments, God. And I just pray, Lord, that I would just be your mouthpiece right now, God. That you would just testify through me, Holy Spirit. Just speak what's on your heart, not on mine. And um, yeah, God, we just welcome you here. Welcome your presence. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to set a timer because... <laughs> All right. Um, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I go to UC Santa Barbara. And when I'm down, I, I come to VTM. <laughs> um, so basically, uh, I just want to start with something the Lord has been teaching me, that all fruitfulness comes from intimacy, right? And I've just been learning that firsthand, that all fruitfulness really does come from a place where you choose to be intimate with God. Now, when I say intimacy, when I first went up to Santa Barbara for summer quarter, I thought intimacy was really frilly, like, oh, like, intimate with God, like, it's so nice and great. And it is at times, but deny yourself. Like, intimacy is, like, when it gets rough, when it gets dirty, and you got to still fight for the things that you believe in. Um, and so that's what intimacy is, and I've just been learning that. And I really feel like God's been teaching me what it's like to be his friend, right? Like, God's, like, my closest friend. Like, God is my best friend. And I just... I just want to share something. So um, I had a writing class, actually, and it was, like, really secular writing class. Like, humanism was being taught. And um, one of the days they were, the teacher was like, oh, everyone, like, say, like, what, the highlight of your day. And I literally had no highlight of my day. But it just so happened that I ended fasting on that day for, I was fasting that week. And so I was like, okay, I'll just say that. It's like, oh, I ended a fast this week. And so that was my highlight because I got to eat today. And then... um, teacher was like, oh, like, why did you, uh, like, wh- for what reason did you fast for? Or like, and I was like, oh, because I just believe that fasting is voluntary weakness to invoke the strength of God. <laughs> I, I said that in my class, and everyone, like, turned to me like, what? <laughs> the teacher's, like, genuinely, con- uh, the professor's, like, genuinely, like, interested. She's like, oh, like, w- like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, and I started talking, like, well, when you give up legitimate pleasures of the world, um, you take on the all-consuming pleasure of God. And so that's why I deny myself. And then I was just talking about that. And then, and then she was like, she's like, wow. Uh, and this is in the middle of class. Like, she's supposed to be going to roll call, but she's, like, taking a huge pause in me. She said, like, hey, like, you're, like, a real super Christian. <laughs> she's like, I never, I never met anyone, like, as serious as you. And I was like, oh, that's a bad thing. <laughs> and then I just, um, I just started talking more, and I was like, yeah, I really take my faith seriously because I really believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And like, I was like, I believe the sole like unifying force and love in this time is not like money, is not wealth, is not fame, is the love of Jesus Christ. And then I was just like preaching to my class kind of. And then after the class, um, or people kind of persecuted me a little bit, but it was whatever. And then after, after the class, the teacher came up to me and was like, hey, like, what's up? Right? And I was like, yo, like, Jesus Christ is a real thing. And so I I went to office hours, and I just straight up was just telling her the gospel. I was like, so Jesus, blah, blah, right? And so I had been praying for professors. One minute left. Okay, or two minutes left. I had professors. I was praying for professors to be saved, right? And that's like, to be honest, that's a pretty big prayer. Like, it takes a lot of faith because, you know, but um, 
the Lord gave me a word when I went up to summer quarter, and, I, and even before that, I've been praying into it, and that was like, the first 150 colleges were founded um, for missionary purposes, like to send out missionaries, and I don't know, like I couldn't trace the meaning behind it, but I looked it up, and the reason they're called professors is because originally they were called to profess their faith. That's crazy! That's freaking crazy, dude! They're called professors because they're called to profess their faith, like, that's nuts, and so... It had been on my heart, and so when I had the opportunity, I was, like, so nervous. I was like, oh, yeah, so Jesus is, like, he's, like, the real thing, you know? And she's, like, super into it, and I'm like, oh, my God, like, Lord, help me. And then, basically, fast forward, this professor ended up receiving Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, right? <laughs> and when she, re- when she received Jesus, right, I was so happy. I was like, dude, that's awesome. And she's like, yeah, now what I do? I was like, oh, like, uh, you got to, like pray and like my mind's like you gotta like pray and fast and like deny yourself take up your cross you gotta like set yourself apart from this world you gotta be the most radical and then I was like you know just like love on just love on Jesus and go to a church right so I rec I referred her to a church and she's been going out I've been uh I I met up with her or she was my professor I also got an A in that class hallelujah (laughs) but um but um Basically, I just, I just really want to share because um, I know, like, I've been hearing a lot about people praying in BTM just, like, for God-sized dreams and God-sized ambitions, and I just really want to empower you guys, like, really dream big. Like, don't settle. Like, the dreams that you currently have, they're too small. You can go bigger than that, right? And I'm not just saying this, like, as a motivational way. Like, it's because God is so big. Like, God is so much bigger than we could imagine, and, like, he has so much more power than we could ever like, I used to pray for revival, or I still pray for revival on my college campus. Like, that's what I'm devoting my life for. And, but God's like, that's not big enough. Like, you need to pray for UC system revival. And I was like, oh, snap. And then God's like, that's not big enough. You need to pray for revival on all college campuses. And I was like, oh, snap. And it's like, now you need to pray for revival. And it just keeps getting bigger, right? And so I really just want to encourage you guys, like, the dreams that you put on your shelves, um, that you, like, stored away, like, really, like, take a hold of them. Just trust them with the Lord. Spend time with Him. Like, just... The best decision I made in my walk with God was to make a prayer closet. That was the, aside from receiving him as my Lord and Savior, that was by far the best decision I've made. Like, so if you guys just been like wrestling with that, just wondering like, how do I get intimate with him? Like, just go into a closet. Might be small. Sit there. You know, you could play music or whatever. You could play some worship music and just enter into the place with God, right? Just like sit before his feet and just gaze upon his beauty. Just gaze upon, that's really what it is. Like, I think we, like, overemphasize it too much. It's really simple. You just got to sit there and just let his presence just overcome you and just, so, yeah, I'll just pray. And, um, yeah, let's pray. So, Father, I just thank you, God, for everything that you're doing, Lord. And, God, I just pray right now, Jesus, teach us what it's like to be intimate with you, God. Lord, we want every day to be a new wave of intimacy, God. We want every day to be one where we just get to sit with you, to spend time with you, God. Lord, may we, when we wake up, I want us to look forward to spending time with you, God. Not checking our phones, God. Not the person we're hanging out with, God. Not the ministry meeting. But, God, to sit with you, Lord. To be with you. To gaze upon your beauty. So, God, just make us people who would just dwell in your presence before anything else, God. Lord, that all fruitfulness would come from our place of love with you. So, Father, we just thank you for everything that's been um, going on in my life, God. I just impart that blessing on every single person here, God. Pray for a thousand professors to be saved right now, Jesus. And um, 
Lord, we just ask for UC System Revival, California College Campus Revival, God. Lord, we just ask right now that America be saved. Lord, we pray for Donald Trump, Lord God, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs> All right. Dude, that's a glorious testimony, bro. Right now, just think of a professor you have. Come on, we're going to pray for him right now. Think of a professor you have. Holy Spirit, we're asking right now, Lord God, for a spirit of revelation to be upon these professors, Lord God. We pray that Jesus would be revealed in His glory, Lord God. We just pray even now, you begin to provoke hearts, Lord God. Bring conviction of sin and righteousness, Lord God. Father, that you would expose, Lord God, the emptiness, Lord, of humanism in our culture, Father, and that you would reveal the glory of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Come on, that's awesome, dude. All right, I actually did want to do one more thing before we go. I wanted to publicly honor President Trump. I said something last week comparing him to a donkey, and I want to be clear about what my intention here was. I was not trying to say that he is a donkey. I was trying to say that God can use anyone. If he can use a donkey, he can use anyone, okay? So just to clarify, um, I want to be clear about that because we're commanded to give honor where honor is due. And specifically, we're commanded to give honor to our rulers. And this is something that there really is um, a demonic spirit that is infusing our culture and provoking people to openly ridicule our president right now. And it's so important that we not come into agreement with that sentiment. That is not our role, brothers and sisters. We are to give him honor and we are to pray for him that God would use him for a greater purpose. I declare God is using Donald Trump right now for a purpose I don't think he understands, but the Lord understands these things. And Father, I just thank you so much for our president, Lord God. And Father, we know, Lord, that you, you are more than able to use him in a wonderful way, Lord God. Lord, so we just ask, Lord God, that your will would be done through his life. We pray that he would come to a radical encounter with you, Lord. That he would come to a true spirit of repentance. He would know you in an intimate way. And Father, we pray that he would glorify you, Lord, in the position that he's in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. We are in the third and last um, segment of the series that we have been on, talking about God's glorious judgments. In week one, we talked about the fact that nothing that God does is evil. Nothing he does is evil. And that includes his judgments. His judgments are not evil. His judgments are valuable and good altogether. We talked about four principles of judgment. Number one, God judges to put a stop to the spread of evil. He judges reluctantly and that God is more concerned with the final judgment. So he will judge, he will kill people sometimes um, in this life so that more people would have a, a more favorable final judgment in the end. So we talked about all of these principles, all of these apply. Last week, we talked about how God disciples nations, right? That he's in the, he superintends the affairs of nations, that he raises up rulers and he deposes them, and that he does use disasters and various other signs as a way of sending messages to nations that oftentimes disasters can absolutely have specific messages embedded 
in them, and they're not obvious. They're not intended to be obvious. So, you know, you do hear in the news from time to time when disasters happen in America, you'll often hear a prominent evangelical say that this happened because of some sin in the culture or God sending a message. And almost always what will happen is national news media will pick it up and write a very negative article about that particular Christian leader. And look, here's what we need to understand. We are not to be swayed by the wisdom of the world. Look, our national news media does not understand spiritual things. Right, we've talked about this before. We are not to be influenced, and especially we are not to take on their judgments or ridicule towards other leaders in the body, right? Now, we've been clear about this. We're not saying that every single natural disaster is a message from God. But I said it could be. But it could be. There could be a message embedded in every single natural disaster. I haven't taken the time to pray in depth into every single one. If you have, and the Lord has told you that one doesn't, you're welcome to share with me. But the reality is, if we don't have an expectation that God speaks in that way, then we won't even have the faith to ask Him what He's saying in these things. And I've, you know, I've, I've said from the beginning that, look, if we don't even have the faith to ask God to speak or to reveal what these things say, then we absolutely do not have um, the authority or the faith to condemn others for what they felt like God might be speaking. Am I making sense? Brothers and sisters, we are not to be like the world. We are not to have, I, I, I mentioned right at the beginning, that we are, you know, the tendency in our culture is not to over-spiritualize, but to under-spiritualize. And that's because we don't understand the spiritual nature that is connected with our physical reality. And that's, we went into that last week about how the two are connected, that they're combined together, that what happens in the spirit often manifests in the physical. We talked about how America has so many similarities with ancient Israel and how God promised Israel that if they were righteous, then they would be blessed in all these various ways. And we saw how America, too, entered into a consecration where we dedicated the nation to the Lord. And because of that, many of the same blessings that came upon ancient Israel have also come upon us. And we looked at how God defeated our enemies for us. We talked about how we didn't defeat our enemies, that really they, they were defeated on their own. <laughs> and it wasn't because it was good luck. It was because God was involved. And I want to encourage us, the whole idea of this entire sermon series is that you would open your eyes in Jesus' name. Jesus' biggest complaint, his rebuke for the people was that they were people with dull spirits. That they had no ears to hear, no eyes to see. And he mentioned, he talks to the Pharisees and he rebukes them. He says, why can't you understand the words that I'm saying? Why can't you recognize the legitimacy of what I'm saying? And, and he points it back to this idea that it's because they're so carnal-minded, they receive glory from one another, but they don't seek the glory that comes from above. And his implication is there is that if they, sought, if they prioritize the glory that came from above rather than the glory that came from people, then they would have open spiritual eyes and open spiritual ears, and they would be able to discern the truth of what he was saying. 
In the same way, brothers and sisters, I'll say this, that if your morality, if your worldview is more formed by the opinions of people, then you will not have eyes and ears to discern what's actually happening in the world today. You'll become so carnally minded that you will brush off all these things and you won't recognize what the Spirit is saying to the church in this hour. And that's why I've been challenging you throughout this to consider that all the ridicule that's heaped on evangelical Christians, I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as a good thing. I see that as a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus himself said. That if they persecuted him, they'll persecute you. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you that you are not to think as the world does, but you are to pursue prophetic revelation and anointing. And look, even in our church, and I'm talking about the church in America, there's still a heavy bias against things of the Spirit. There's a mentality that people who are really spiritual, that they're just the weird, they're like weird Christians. I'm like, well, you don't know how to discern the difference between a prophetic Christian and a weird Christian. By the way, weird Christians do exist. I've known some. <laughs> right, they do exist. But the reality is, if, if, if you're carnal-minded, you don't know the difference between somebody who's prophesying and somebody who's saying just random gibberish, right? And the reality is that most of the church in America today, it's probably about, you know, it, it, it may not be most anymore, which is glorious, right? Maybe about half. But half the church in America still, today still rejects the gifts of the Spirit. This is unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable um, from a biblical standpoint. I, I, I encourage you. Look, how many of you guys are at Biola? How many of you guys are at Biola? Brothers and sisters at Biola, don't take my word for it yourselves, okay? At the beginning of my talk, I challenge you, don't take my word for it. See what the Scriptures say about these things. And I say the same thing when it comes to gifts of the Spirit. Don't take my word for it. See what the Scriptures say about these things. The reality is that there is not a good biblical argument that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today, but what it does is it keeps so much of the church in complete carnality and ignorance because they're not even willing to open up to the possibility that God might be speaking, that He might have messages for us today that we're supposed to hear and we're supposed to respond to. And this is our heart as we consider these things today I will absolutely continue that premise. Challenge what I say, not with the spirit of skepticism or cynicism, but challenge it according to the Scriptures. That's my invitation. Because that's an important, that's an important test. We're to test all things according to the Scriptures. So as we start today, let me say this. I don't have enough time to really go in depth into this. But I've said it before, so I'm going to say it again. Disasters will increase as we approach the end of the age. We did the whole thing in our eschatology series on this. So if this is something that you're not sure of, I encourage you, go download our podcast and listen to the whole five, six-part eschatology series because we go into this in depth. Disasters will increase. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Using the metaphor of birth pangs, right? This idea that the birth, that the earth is in, is in labor 
for the new creation, right? And there's these birth pangs that are going to increase. And in the eschatology series, I suggested that World War I, World War II, this was a birth pang that the earth experienced. Can I tell you that the future ones are going to be worse? That's how it works, okay? That's how it works. That's how birth, it doesn't get, it don't, they don't get lighter, right? They get worse. So it should not be surprising to us, right? If our minds have been discipled by the scriptures, it should not be surprising to us that things are going to get worse, that we're going to have greater catastrophes, that there are going to be greater disasters. That should not be a surprise to us. No, I would say this. I think there's good reason to believe that California will experience a major earthquake. We live on a fault line. That's, that, this is not prophetic right now. Okay? There's going to be a major earthquake sometime. My question is, are you prepared for it? You should be prepared for it. If you were here with us, you know, how many years ago when we talked about this? Two years ago, I said, you should be prepared for it. And I'll say it again. You should be prepared for it. You should have stores of food and water, right? You should have emergency blankets and lights and a backpack. You should have these things. And this is not even considering the prophetic warnings about this. This is just because you've decided to live on an earthquake fault line. So you should be prepared. Okay. Now, on top of that, there have been tons of prophetic warnings about an earthquake in California. A very serious one. Now, the reality is that our church, and I'm talking about the, you know, the church universal, is very divided over this idea of warnings of earthquakes and things like that. And the reason why is this, because oftentimes when there are warnings consider, considering earthquakes and riots and things like this, people freak out. Christians freak out. The very first message I preached on this series, I quoted a blog from Chris Valentin. At the beginning of that blog article, he shares the story about how his parents lived in the Bay Area, and they heard these prophecies about an earthquake that would hit California. And they're like, oh my gosh. And what do they do? They moved, right? They moved far away from, from the Bay Area so that they wouldn't experience this earthquake that was coming. And he used that as evidence of why we should not heed these types of warnings and how the earthquake never came. And I, I want to say that is not the right thing to draw from that. I explained the first week about why I disagree with his theology on this. But look, we don't know the timing of these things, okay? If you've never taken our prophetic um, class, our prophetic training, we talk about prophetic timing. Timing is one of the most difficult things in prophecy, okay? It's one of the most difficult things in prophecy. It's very difficult to tell timing because, look, I'll tell you, when you get a strong prophetic word, I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels like it's just about to happen. All of them. It's the nature of prophecy. The nature of prophecy sees what's on the horizon. It's just about to come. And you're like, it's imminent. Prepare for it. Get ready for it. And then it might be like 2,000 years later. 
That's how it is in the Bible, right? There's all these prophecies in the Bible. I like to use the one in Joel 2 because Peter quotes Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost, which we studied in our Bible studies a couple weeks ago, right? And he, he says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit, right? He goes into that, and then he continues, you know, in blood and fire, and, and then before the coming of the, of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what you see right there is that the first part of that prophecy was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. The second part, which sounds like it's supposed to come right after, still is not yet fulfilled. Am I making sense? So the reality is that timing is really difficult. I don't know when there's going to be a great earthquake. Some prophets, by the way, do give timing and have given timing on other things, and they've been very, very accurate. But I say this, you should absolutely not take it that you can therefore dismiss those words and say, I don't need to pay attention to those things. No, 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 because the whole point of the word is to help you prepare for it. The whole point of the word is to help you prepare for it. But you can go to one of two extremes. On one extreme, you could go, OMG, right? I got to move out of here. I got to, like, call my friends. I got to forsake all the things that God called me to do here because now it's just about save yourself. That's extreme one. Extreme two is, like, all oh, those prophets are always talking about earthquakes and stuff. Those guys are all crazy. Forget them. We don't need to talk. We don't need to worry about any of that kind of stuff. Those are both wrong extremes of what you should do. So what, what should we do? Number one, do not give in to anxiety. We're never called to give in to anxiety. Let me put you another way. Anxiety is never from God. Anxiety is never from God. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, how do you fulfill that command? Somebody tells you there's going to be a great earthquake in California. You're like, oh, my gosh, I might die. <laughs> By the way, we went through something like this up in, up in NorCal. Um, there was a, the word about an earthquake, and... Um, couple nights later, I had a dream. In the dream, I was in a skyscraper, and I was talking with somebody, and then the ground started to shake, right? The ground started to shake, and in the dream, everything started tilting sideways, and the building that I was in was collapsing, was falling over, right? And then I woke up, and I was like, <laughs> I was shook a little bit. <laughs> Just being real. Got a little anxious right there. Okay. But what does Paul say in Philippians? In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. This is the hard part. This is why we're doing this entire series. How do we respond to these words? With thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an integral part of our response. Mercy, God be, no God, don't send the earthquake. God, just give us mercy. God, forget all that stuff. Just do what I want you to do. No. There's got to be an aspect where we can say, God, 
All right, I'm giving you my anxiety and my worry. And Father, I'm thanking you that you're in control. I'm thanking you that if you send a judgment, then your judgment is good and that it's right and true. I'm asking for mercy, Lord God. We have to have our theology right in order to respond correctly to the crises that the earth is going to be going through. If we don't have our theology right, we do all sorts of crazy stuff. But we are to absolutely give thanks in the midst of alarm. You can have a sense of alarm in your spirit and not be anxious. That's possible. You can have a sense of there's an, there's, it's important that we act, but without anxiety and without worry. Jesus says this, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Your worry does not help you. This is the lie of anxiety. The lie of anxiety is that you need the anxiety, and without it, you're going to be in trouble. But I want to tell you this, anxiety is not from God. Anxiety is the wrong response to alarm. It's a perversion of what you should feel. You should feel a sense of imminence where you must act and act decisively. But you want to do that without anxiety. Anxiety will always lead you. Look, the way when the enemy leads you, it's primarily by fear. The enemy says, aren't you worried? You're not going to have a job after college if you pray that much. You're like, Mom, is that you? <laughs> but it's the voice of fear. It's trying to drive you according to fear. Am I making sense? Right? You never want to be driven by fear. You must drive out the fear, and then you'll be able to discern clearly what God's calling you to do. If you allow anxiety and fear to drive you, let me tell you this, it's probably not God. When you're acting anxious, when you're acting worried, it's probably not God. And you are, you've been caught in a trap where you think, I've got to do this or something really bad is going to happen. No, what you got to do is you have to remove the anxiety. Okay? And the way that we do that is through worship. Okay, we come before the Lord. Learning to come before the Lord and worship in the midst of calamity is one of the most important things you can do because it calibrates your spirit and it, it gives you faith to actually hear what God is saying to you. A lot of people think God is far away. He's not hearing me. He's not speaking. But no, I'll tell you what happens when you feel that way. The issue is that your faith is down here. You need faith to be able to hear what he's saying. And the way that you build your faith is through worship. You start to declare his goodness. You declare his love. You remember that he's your protector, that he's your provider. Look, you might die in the earthquake, and then you go to heaven. Right? That was part of the peace that Paul had. He knew that he was going to die. But he says to me, right, to die is gain. Right? Brothers and sisters, we're to have that same peace. We're not to allow a fear of death, right, to get in the way of discerning what God is saying to us in the moment. Okay? So there's probably going to not give in to anxiety. Here's the truth. There's probably going to be a major earthquake in California, 
probably in our lifetime, and again, that's not a for sure, but probably, and I think that there's probably going to be a serious financial disaster in the United States. And this is, again, this is the purpose of this is not to drive fear into your heart. It's to give you sobriety so that you can make wise decisions in this time. Am I making sense? In our, in our, crime, in our Crown Financial Seminar, which was glorious, the last two days we were here from 9 to 5. Did you guys read the prologue to that book? Probably not. You're like, I'm done with this book. Right? No, after studying this book for 16 hours, I felt like I should read the very end. And I did. And the author of this financial seminar book, he's a Christian, shared how in 1977 he had a, a dream, a vivid dream, like a trance, like an open vision. And what he saw was that God spoke to him and said that there was going to be a major financial collapse in America in his lifetime. Now, the thing is, I've heard that word like 10 times from legit prophets, right? So I, I saw that and I was like, makes sense to me. I'm not going to be alarmed by a financial collapse. Now, in the midst of it, I might, you know, might have to struggle with a little bit. But the reality is that that would not be surprising to me, okay? That would not be surprising to me. Can you guys know about financial markets in 2000, 2007, 2008, right? We had a housing bubble in America, and it, it dang nearly collapsed our economy, okay? What happened was that President Obama injected $1.7 trillion into the economy, went on four rounds of quantitative easing. Do you know what quantitative easing means? Money printing. That's what it means. They printed a lot of money to increase liquidity in the markets so that the banks would not collapse. Now, I know that's a lot of economic mumbo-jumbo to a lot of you guys. Let me just give you the dumbed-down version, okay? Our economy almost collapsed, okay? What they did to stave off the collapse, okay, wait, wait let, me, let me back up this bus. The reason why we almost collapsed was because our economy was built on way too much overextended credit. Overextended credit. You know, it's like when you get, you max out your credit card and you have no way to pay it back, what do you do? You get another credit card, right? So that you could pay off your first credit card, right? And then you have, you know, you have another credit card with a higher spending limit. Now you're tempted to spend some more and to pay back all your debts, and it becomes a vicious cycle, right? Welcome to America 2017. The reality is that we have, we have incredibly overextended our credit in the nation. And how did President Obama stave off the disaster? By getting another credit card. Okay? What's my point? My point is this, that at no point were the structural weaknesses of our economy fixed. What happened was we made them worse in the long term so that it wouldn't happen now. Okay? That's the simplest way that I can put it. Okay. What, what does that mean? That means that the collapse, when it comes, will probably be worse than it would have been in 2007 and 2008 if the economy had collapsed then. Okay. What is that? What is, what is all this? What does that even mean? Financial collapse, economic collapse. It, it does not mean we go back to the Stone Age or something like that. Okay. What it probably means is that a lot of our liquid assets could potentially be wiped out or devalued in a major way. And it probably means that we'll eventually go back on the gold standard, print a new, a new form of currency. Uh, again, this is economic stuff. That I don't want to, you know, get too much in. 
It does not mean the end of the power. But what it does mean, it will probably mean the contraction of American power. And without, you know, I feel like I'm in a college class right now trying to do in like five minutes what really should take like four hours. Um, but what that means is that will create instability in the world. Okay, American power, I've said this before, American hegemony, that's the term to mean that American, America is so strong militarily and economically, right, that nobody dares to defy us, except for a crazy guy in North Korea, right? Um, but if American power contracts, then what happens? Then we have other powers who start to challenge American hegemony. It means instability in, in the geopolitical world. So... Is this something that we can expect? I think absolutely. Okay? And again, why is this happening spiritually? Well, we talked about it last, last week. It's happening because the blessing that we've been given from the Lord has led to our pride as a nation, and which is why we're forsaking God and we're leaving the righteous foundation that was the source of our nation's blessing and prosperity. May I make sense? Okay. So... What do you do? You do not give into anxiety. You personally prepare, right? I talked about earthquake preparation. You should have stores of food and water, lights, emergency blankets. You should make sure that you do not have things that can fall on your head while you're sleeping if an earthquake happens in the night, okay? You got like a, I just really love huge painting, right, with a heavy frame right above my head. No, you should move that because if there's an earthquake, that could shake and smash you, right? I would recommend that you have some of your assets. Now, most of you are probably not investors at this point, but I would recommend if you do have investments that you would diversify and have some in precious metals, meaning I have a couple, you know, gold coins at home. You can't find them. Don't try and look for them, right? Um, I think that's just wisdom. Again, we're talking about the realm of wisdom here, right? But spiritually speaking, what you need is you need to not have the foundation of your life built on worldly wisdom. This is what Jesus talks about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock, right? The wind and the waves come. Guess what we're talking about? We're talking about a wave, right? The wind and the waves come, and they do not destroy the house. Why? Because the house isn't built on something that can be destroyed by those. You destroy my worldly wealth, I actually get richer, because I'm in debt, <laughs> right? I'm not worried at all about the economic system collapsing. I'll actually get richer. <laughs> I'm not saying you should do that, but I am saying that your confidence should not be built on the things of this world. Your confidence should be built on a kingdom that cannot be shaken, right? Because you have to be able to see things spiritually in the moment, because what we need to understand is this. Disaster is not all bad news if you're in the kingdom. Here's the truth. Disaster is going to cause major open doors in the end times into the kingdom of God. What do I mean? I mean people's hearts are opened when their world is shaken. We become arrogant and proud because we feel like we got it all figured out. I know it's going to happen. I don't care about you and your stupid little religion, all this kind of stuff, until disaster strikes, and then they realize the bankruptcy of their entire philosophy, right? They realize 
that all of a sudden I have no idea what would happen if I would die. I've never actually thought about it. But now I've got to think about it. They become the other thing you have, right? So as you personally prepare, the other thing you have to do is prepare for the kingdom too because there's going to be a huge opportunity for the kingdom. I say this, take disaster relief classes, learn CPR and first aid. All these things, there's going to be a huge open door into the kingdom. We're going to see masses of people come to know Jesus in the midst, in the wake of disasters that happen all over the earth. And the reality is that God is going to send many of you into other nations to preach the gospel to those whose world has been shaken, and you're going to come with a message of hope. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can give thanks, because in every judgment, right, we understand that there's always a redemptive purpose, right? We understand that there's hope in every situation. Hope is always from the Lord, right? Hope is always from the Lord. When it's rightly centered on His Word, we have a hope that cannot disappoint. Oftentimes, our hope gets disappointed and shaken, but that means that we've put our hope on the wrong thing, and we have an opportunity to put our hope back on His Word. So those are the practical things. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We should always be prepared. There's going to be huge open doors to evangelize the lost in times of disaster. All right. You have a blueprint now for how to prepare for these things. Again, do not give in into anxiety. Be personally prepared just as an act of wisdom. And then what do you do? Then you contend for the nation. Why are we doing what we're doing? We're contending that God would not have to judge us harshly, but that we would turn. Look, the principle is this. You can fall on the rock or the rock can fall on you. We don't have to learn the hard way, America. It's much better to learn the easy way. It's much better to choose humility and repentance before the Lord, to recognize that we're sinful and we're arrogant and turn to the Lord voluntarily. I believe there's going to be an opportunity for that to happen in mass. I am talking about a great revival in the nation. I think the Lord will probably give us an opportunity before major disaster strikes, or at least that is my great hope. Let's contend in prayer for this, brothers and sisters. Let's contend that America can learn the easy way, that our latter glory can be greater than our former. What does that mean? That means that we can look back on today, 100 years from now, and say, thank God America was headed to disaster, but there was a praying and contending church that arose in that time and that brought a new wave of righteousness and morality that prayed it in to the culture. Brothers and sisters, that's us. We're the hope. Why the heck are we telling you to go pray on your campus? Because it'll be good for you. It will be, but that's not the real reason, right? Why are we contending for revival? Because we care about the people around us. We care about them. We want God to move in our nation in an amazing way. And again, this is not a weird charismatic thing. I have to say this because people think that revival is, a, is like a, a spirit-filled charismatic thing. It's not. It's the story of every single denomination that we have today. 
Every denomination we have today was born out of a revival movement, out of the Spirit getting poured out. When you look at some of the crazy denominations, you know, like Hillary Clinton, I believe, is a Methodist, right? You know the story of the Methodist? We have a picture of one downstairs sitting on a horse in our overflow cafe, right? The story of the Methodist is amazing. They went out everywhere and preached the gospel, lay people, not ordained ministers. They, had, they anointed lay people to go out and preach the gospel everywhere, all over the nation. It's part of the Second Great Awakening. It was an incredible move of God. Brothers and sisters, it can happen again today. What am I talking about? I'm talking about you. I'm talking about God giving a burden, a fire in our hearts to get up out of our churches and to go and preach the gospel. I think that that, I have a great hope that some of you are going to be involved in doing that. I have a great hope. Brothers and sisters, this is why we pray. This is why we do what we do. It's not because we're a bunch of weird people. We are. We are. That one's really weird, right? We are weird. We're the good weird, though. We're the good weird. But I call you in the name of Jesus, contend on your campuses in the place of prayer. Not just on your campuses. Join us as we pray here too for Wellspring next week. But I want to say, get on your campuses. Look, if you've never done it, I invite you. It's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. Sometimes it's boring. But you have the power. Oh, if you would grow into a mature prayer person, you'd never have to sit through a boring prayer meeting again. Because you would bring the anointing yourself. You wouldn't be relying on someone else to bring in the anointing into the prayer meeting. What am I talking about, by the way? I'm talking about the burden. I'm talking about where you carry around a burden for the things of God so that every prayer meeting you get into, you start to simply pray what's already in your heart, and it starts to infect the rest of the meeting. All of a sudden, it becomes a glorious prayer meeting. right? I would, I would say this. Don't complain about boring prayer meetings. You drive the prayer meeting then. Right? You'll be the one to bring the fire and the passion into that prayer meeting. I pray that every prayer meeting any of us are a part of would become a glorious prayer meeting. Oh, that we would have a heart that we don't have to be disempowered. We don't have to be the ones who are waiting for someone else to do something, but that God could use us. Look, I sucked that prayer for so long. You know how many boring prayer meetings I sat through in my life? Thousands. It's probably thousands. It might be hundreds. It's probably thousands, though. Right? It's got to be thousands. It has to be. I've sat in so many bad prayer meetings. I know all about them. I know about the prayer meeting where that one guy is preaching. He's, he's not praying. right? He's actually speaking to you. God, we thank you that you love the poor God. And you see them, even though we don't see them sometimes. He's not even talking. He's not even talking to God. He's talking to you. You've been in those prayer meetings? I've been in so many of those prayer meetings. Rule number one, when you're in a prayer meeting, talk to God. Talk to God. Fix your eyes on God. God, we need you to move. God, we need your heart. God, pour out your spirit. Talk to God in your prayer meetings. That will really go a long ways into making them more powerful. So we pray and contend for revival, and then what else do we do? We fight and contend for righteousness in the culture. I tell you, my heart has been so burdened for this lately. Brothers and sisters, there was a, there was a dude, was it JT at the Call of Jesus Street? I think it was, where he said, we don't need another civil rights movement. We need a civil righteousness movement. 
It's prophetic. Take that up. Pray that. It's a strong prayer. We need a civil righteousness movement in America again. Look, I tell you, at the root of our issues is not some person who's oppressing another person. I know it's tempting to think that way, but I tell you that the great oppressor of our souls is the sin that besets us. We need a righteousness movement. We need people whose opinions are formed by Scripture. We need people who love His commands, who don't just tolerate them, who don't just try to follow them, but who fall in love with His commands. Look at this. It's not going to be on the board from Psalm 119. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. The problem in the church today is we don't love his laws. If we loved his laws, our churches would be filled with righteousness, brothers and sisters. This is what I believe God is doing. He, he wants to purify the bride with a righteousness movement. This is what I've been praying for Biola. This is what I felt every single time I walk on that campus. I feel like God, raise up preachers of righteousness again in America. Send forth preachers of righteousness from Biola and from Talbot, God. Father, let them fill all the churches in America. Lord, renew the bride. Renew the purity, oh God. Give us a love for your commands and decrees. Lord, even your judgments are altogether righteous, oh God. Father, give us that heart. And I say that's what we have to pray for, but that's what we must become. And I tell this to every single one of you. All of you are called to be preachers. Every single person is called to be a preacher. Look, it's, it's not that you have to be up here, and not all of you will be on a stage talking to people. But look, most of the influence for righteousness comes in relational conversation. It comes in relational conversation. The greatest influence that we have as a people are the relational sentiments that we express to those that know that we love them. Am I making sense? You are called to be a preacher, but you have to find your voice. You don't find your voice by just practicing preaching. You find your voice by being convicted of your personal sin and making a difficult decision to repent. That's how it works. That's how it works. You don't become a great preacher by just having a loud voice. <laughs> loud voice sometimes helps. That's not what it's about. It's about having a depth of morality in your heart because you've made the difficult decisions to turn from sin. And God has enlightened the eyes of your heart. That's what it's about. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be renewed. Let your mind be renewed. Let your life be transformed. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are all called to do. We're all called to be preachers because we have an inner burden of righteousness in our hearts. I challenge you, the only way you can fight effectively for righteousness is to become a righteous person. A person who is devoted to right or wrong. It's absolute. It's not a moral, it's not a social construct. It's absolute because it's whatever God thinks is right or wrong. And his ways are altogether good. 
Brothers and sisters, I challenge you to believe that God is calling you to be a person of great influence, a minister. You're called to be a minister. You're called to minister the truth and the reality of God's word. And I say that this is what is coming again. Another great awakening where God is going to unleash the ministers and the congregations. He's going to unleash those who have a personal devotion to righteousness. He's going to give them a voice. They're going to become influential in America again. And it starts, that's you. Fight for righteousness. And it starts with fighting for your own. Fight for your own righteousness, brothers and sisters. Look, we live in a culture where your righteousness is under attack. You are having people preach to you constantly a perverted understanding of righteousness. If you don't disciple yourselves in the scriptures, if you don't learn to love his word, you cannot withstand all the Facebook preachers. You can't. They're talking to you constantly. You've got to decide, God, I love your word. Teach me your word. Let me understand your ways. God, give me the heart like Jeremiah that your word would be a fire in my bones and I can't hold it in. Don't don't plan on becoming a pastor. Let God give you a voice. Let him open up the doors for you to become a pastor if that's what it's about. But whether you preach on this stage or you preach on the stage of your business or in the stage of your classroom, whatever it might be, you need the voice. You must have a voice. And I say this lovingly because, look, some of you are like, but that's so far away from me. I'm still struggling with, like, all these different sins. And I want to say, good job. Good job struggling. If you weren't trying, you wouldn't be struggling. You'd just be doing it. Right? If you're struggling against sin, good job. There's grace for you. You don't get to be sanctified overnight. It's got to start somewhere. I want to say some of you, because you're comparing yourself with other people, are constantly under a spirit of accusation. Brush that off. Don't give in to the temptation to compare yourself to one another. I tell you that for some of you, even though you struggle with various sins, God's already anointed you with the spirit of righteousness. He's already using you as an influence for righteousness right now. Look, we all have struggles. The question is, where is our devotion? I want to encourage you, don't be weary. I know it's a fight. I know it's a struggle. For all of us, we're all struggling against sin. And I want to say this is the beauty of the cross, that his mercies are new every morning. Why are they new every morning? Because you need them every morning. Right? Oh, no, I got over all those sins. I don't need his mercy anymore. Man, you got a whole other set of problems. No, we're all in desperate need, trying to follow his single day. Let me encourage you right now, right? If you're trying to follow his word, you're making difficult decisions to open up and to confess. You're struggling in that place. Let me encourage you right now. This is what scripture says. It says, strengthen the knees that are feeble, right? Let's strengthen one another. Let's encourage each other in our churches. Here's the last thing I'm going to say before we wrap up worship team. Come on up. Take ownership of your communities. Okay, your house church, don't rely on your house church leaders. Don't rely on them. Maybe you're a stronger leader than they are. 
What am I saying? I'm saying you take on the burden. Why? Because it's important to you, right? You take on the burden. I'm going to encourage the people in my house church. I'm going to contend for revival in my house church. I'm going to seek after the Lord. Even if nobody else seeks after the Lord during this meeting, I'm going to seek after God. You make that decision yourself. Brothers and sisters, look, this is a huge problem in Asian culture. We always play follow the leader. How about you be the leader? You be the spiritual leader. You don't need a title to lead. Don't disempower yourself because you think you can't do it. This is the word, especially for our sisters in this age. This is exactly what God's doing. He's raising up female leaders in America. America needs women of God in these times. I tell you, needs women of God to rise up. They're going to play a key, a pivotal role in the coming move of God and what he's doing. Women, that's you. Sisters, that's you. Oh, that you would believe that God has a great destiny for you. I'm not talking about great as the world sees. I'm not talking about famous or rich. No. I'm talking about glorious in God's eyes. That's the kind of destiny he's got one for you, but you've got to take hold of that which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. Take hold of the calling that you have in Christ Jesus. Right now, some of you already have preaching anointing all over you. Show Let the Lord open up the platforms. You just be faithful to do what God's telling you to do. I say that to some of you. You've got a burden on your heart already. And I say the Lord's testing you in this season to see if you'll fear him more than people. Pass the test. Pass the test in this season. Do what he's calling you to do. For some of you, he's going to call you to be despised and ridiculed by some people around you. Embrace it. Lord, if this is what it takes for you, I'll gladly do it. I'll gladly be despised by these people if it means that you'll be pleased. If I can please, if I can bless your heart, God. Right now, I want to invite you to stand up. This is the burden on my spirit. An anointing, a conviction for righteousness. This is it. This is what the nation needs. This is what all of us need. I want to invite you, if you know that you want an anointing for righteousness in your life, I want to invite you to come up right now, and we're going to pray and lay hands on you that God would give you a depth of conviction. He'd give you an alarm in your spirit. you go, God, I want to overcome these besetting sins. I want to overcome these temptations. I want to be right set free. God, I want to have a voice for what you want to do in this coming age, God. Right now, let's lift up our voices and let's worship. And staff and other leaders, if you're not already up here, go ahead and start to lay hands on them right now. We're going to ask that God would raise up men and women of righteousness.